You are listening to Cut Jib Newsletter Speaks, the podcast. This is uh, series number four, episode number two. JJ Sefton here, along with my good friend and co-blogger, CBD. And today we have a very special guest joining us for the first time on the podcast. Christian Toto is an award-winning journalist, film critic, and podcaster with over 20 years of experience covering Hollywood and the Hollywood Beats. Uh, he's a Rotten Tomatoes certified reviewer and belongs to both the Critics' Choice Association and the Denver Film Critics Society, and his links are a regular feature on my morning report. Christian, welcome to the show. It's great to have you. It is good to be here. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining us. Um, by the way, uh, folks, about an hour and a half ago, I turned on my computer and I started uh, poking around. I wanted to learn a little bit about uh, Mr. Toto, Christian, and I clicked on his uh, website, hollywoodintoto.com, and I lost my mind. It was great. So uh, I heartily recommend it. Um, that's not really a plug. That's not why Christian is on, uh, but uh, it is absolutely worth reading. Anyway, well, thanks. let's move on. Yes, uh, I'm going to lead it off here a little bit. Uh, the, you know, the culture wars, as, as a Breitbart, uh, may he rest in peace, used to say, is uh, politics is downstream from culture. And this is really, you know, where it's all happening. And of late, you know, the cultural revolutionaries, uh, the woke uh, regime have taken it upon themselves to not only tear down monuments, but to go after cultural icons in movies, uh, television, and the music industry, and, and the arts, and everywhere. And uh, the latest uh, uh, incidence of this is uh, what they're trying to do to uh, a classic movie, uh, one of the one of my favorites, The French Connection. And Christian had an article yesterday about it, and he followed it up with. Uh, with this piece about a director named Tom Six, the director of the Human Centipede franchise, wallows in repulsive material. That trilogy alone is marked by gruesome visuals few films could duplicate. Uh, and as he said uh, in his Twitter, Disney has apparently censored the French connection by removing a line of offensive dialogue without notice, warning, or statement. The censorship carries over to the Criterion Channel and theatrical screenings of At Disney and At the French Connection at censorship. And this is... Uh, this is something that is just uh, amazing and frightening to behold. It sure is, and it's not unexpected. We've already seen classic books get censored, and there really has been no outrage, no significant outrage. You know, people generally on the right have been upset about it, but they don't get any, they don't have the cultural cachet that the left does. And, you know, there have been a few voices of reason. I think both Tom Hanks and Steven Spielberg spoke out against it, but there's, it's not en masse. It's not this group of people. It's not variety. It's not the New York Times saying that this is wrong. So it will continue. And now it's spread into art, uh, another art. It's obviously movies. And this story has been percolating for a couple of days now. And I don't see it at Variety or the Hollywood Reporter or Deadline.com or the New York Times or CNN or the Washington Post. They don't want to cover it in part because they know how bad it looks. And that's part of the reason why some stories get reported on and some aren't. And uh, you're going to see more and more of this. And uh, until we speak out, until we make our presence felt, it'll continue. Absolutely correct. Um, actually, I, I wrote about that uh, this morning on Ace of Spades, um, the idea that we have to p not just play defense, that we have to take this this fight uh, to our enemies. Um, but uh, what, what I was thinking about as you're talking, you're using the word censorship. Um, and obviously, the, the, the correct definition of censorship is government action. But what we see now is a is the confluence of government and corporate 
censorship, which is really terrifying. And I mean, if you want to define fascism, uh, you've got it right there, that confluence yeah. of both the, the corporate and the government world. Um, the, you know, the, the, the movie, The French Connection, as Christian pointed out, is not the first and it will not be the last. And until we we push back forcefully and demand that that, that mere words not be criminalized, uh, this will continue and it, it will accelerate. What's amazing to me, and I've been aghast about this for a long time now, is that I got into this whole gig because I love movies. I love going to the movies, love talking about the movies, debating movies, you know, savoring my Blu-ray collection, which is now prehistoric given the streaming age. And I'm just shocked that there isn't any collective outrage from artists about all of these different censorship issues. They are silent, they are scared, they are cowardly, and they won't even speak up for their own craft. And that amazes me because the artists we're talking about speak up on everything, every issue, every significant headline. They can't stop talking. And they should talk. They're Americans. They've got that right. But the one issue that really matters, the one issue where they've got a connection to it, where it directly impacts their livelihood, they are frightened to death, which is why I pointed out a, a director known for gross out material, Tom Six, is one of the few people willing to put his neck out and say, yeah, this is wrong. You know, it's uh, the, the so I can collect my thoughts here for a half a second. Um, there's the, the, the artist's community, I think, in general, first of all, Hollywood is about, you know, they, they complained about the blacklist. Here's a real blacklist. If you are a conservative or have anything even slightly to the right of, uh, you know, of whomever, you're, you know, you are, you could be considered uh, persona non grata and, and literally lose your career. It's been known to happen and happens all the time. So they're kind of caught in a, between, in a rock and a hard place in a way. And I'm not, you know, not, not the conservative, but the, the average leftist uh, Hollywood actor, actress. And I'm, believe me, I'm not, uh, I'm not a special pleader for them in this case. But they've spent literally the last however many years as this whole woke revolution started um, cheering as, uh, you know, Confederate statues went down, as uh, so many people got uh, outed and ousted and so on and so forth, that to now take a stand that essentially echoes the stance of freedom of speech and freedom of uh, expression is to go against what they've been preaching about for so long. So it's this, uh, you know, they're, they're all of a sudden it's they're in this this. Uh, uh, they're, they're trapped in, in a catch-22. They're damned if they do, and they're damned if they don't. And yes, outside of people like Tom Six and maybe Spielberg and Hanks, no one is speaking out to defend, uh, you know, to, to defend these these uh, these these works. I mean, yes, we can all look at things like, um, oh, I don't know, let's say Gone with the Wind, and see, you know, Hattie McDaniel and Butterfly McQueen, or even you know, The Little Rascals and so forth. And, and sometimes you cringe at, at things or even in, you know, the classic like um, uh, Holiday Inn where they're doing the, the song Abraham. And there's, uh, you know, there's our favorite Bing Crosby in blackface. And you sort of you, know, you kind of cringe at it. But the fact is, these works were of their time and they, they represent their time and you have to accept them for that. Uh, and, and to not do that is to try to rewrite into erase history. And again, this is what the left does. The left. And the cultural revolutionaries are looking for the year zero where nothing uh, where nothing before them existed. And, and and so therefore they can write their own history and make everything seem uh, the way that they wanted to. So it's a uh, pretty, pretty frightening. It is. And a quick point. There was an article a year or two ago. I think it was in Variety. 
And it was basically looking at some older films and why they're problematic and maybe why they need warning labels. And it was one of those, you know, think pieces that made you want to, you know, wretch your, up your lunch. But what was interesting about it is that the left is never satisfied. This isn't looking back at a movie from the 50s and 60s or even much earlier and saying, yeah, it's a different era, different culture, different time. We've evolved since then. This particular story attacked Forrest Gump, which was made in the 90s. It also attacked Once Upon a Time in America, which is a legitimately great film by Quentin Tarantino from 2019. And it said some of the material in there was problematic. So we're not going in the Wayback Machine. We're not you know, getting into Doc Brown's a car to go back to the future. This is just recently. And that's where this cultural movement is going. Nothing is good enough. Nothing is woke enough. And they will, uh, you know, scrub through anything and everything, which is why when you find an example like the French Connection sequence, why it matters, because it's never a one off. It's always the beginning. And unless you stop it, it keeps progressing. But what's fascinating is the cultural shift has been incredibly rapid. Uh, Christian wrote just yesterday um, about one of my favorite movies called The King's Speech. And uh, apparently, and I I knew nothing of this, um, when it was released in 2011, um, the uh, studio decided to release a PG-13 version of it, which um, cut uh, some uh, cursing out of it. And the at least one of the actors um, was furious about it. Uh, he thought that it was it was an insult to his art. It was an insult to the movie. And it was it was a terrible, terrible thing. Um, and yet fast forward 12 years and we have, as Christian pointed out, uh, we have a, a huge majority in Hollywood who meekly goes along with with the destruction of their art. You know, you guys, yeah. you, guys make, you guys make the point that, you know, that, that this is, and Christian, I think you made the point of um, it's never good enough for them. And, and there's a reason for this. They can't accept the, the, the logical explanation that, look, this was of its time. And even if it was 10 years ago, but going back, they can never accept it because they need collective ongoing guilt. There is no, we have moved on beyond, beyond, beyond this. You know, that, this is why we have the whole reparations movement. For people who literally are, whose great great grandparents were slaves, maybe, or, or, or were the slave masters, and with no connection whatsoever to the Civil War other than re- relatives to slavery, because they have to keep this notion of victimization and victimizers alive, because this is from, from whence they draw their power. So to, to do this, to, to say that, look, the movie has to be accepted, it's of its time, leave it alone, don't watch it if you don't want to watch it, it's not good enough. They have to erase history. And they have to constantly rub our noses in it that we are guilty and we are oppressors and they are the victims uh, and uh, and we will pay uh, in perpetuity and forever. The word you said in the middle of that conversation is the key word to everything here. It's power. This is not about making the world a better place. This is not about writing systemic racism or some other catchphrase. It is always about power. And that's why things are never good enough. You always have to flex the power. You always have to shake people down. It's about power. If the woke mob was truly interested in making the world a better place and had any kind of consistency, I might disagree with it, but I'd respect it and I'd listen. It's not about that. And my example, which I I can't stop mentioning, and I think it's really important, is that country singer Morgan Wallen almost had his career capsized because he used the N-word in private and not against a black person. And it was caught on video and his whole career collapsed and he's been able to piece it back 
thank goodness for him because he didn't deserve that. And yet Hunter Biden sent out multiple texts using the N-word and literally nothing happened to him. In fact, Frank, he just went out and sold his artwork for way, way more than any artist should have their work sold for, especially someone with the background of Hunter Biden. So that's how you know it's full of malarkey to quote a Bidenism. And it's huh. not about making the world a better place. It's about power and it's about subjugation. And it's about uh, what, what we saw in, the, in China in the 1960s. It's happening right now. And the artists can't stop being silent. Well, look at look at rap and uh, and hip hop music. They use the N word uh, all the time. It's 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 a it's a it's nothing. It uh, you know and 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 mainstream uh, recording studios accept it without without complaint. So as you point out, it's the it's the height of hypocrisy, and and that obviously it has nothing to do with racially charged words. It has everything to do with power, and um, you know. At, it's going to continue, unfortunately, um, yeah. until until we push back. And um, using that as a segue into the into the current uh, brouhaha, brouhaha. Oh my, I'm, I'm quite witty with Bud Light. Um, I'm I am extraordinarily pleased that Bud Light is crashing and burning. Um, and you know, it, it is it, it is the power of the conservative in America, or the non woke. Uh, normal in America that uh, with just a little bit of effort, we can change the paradigm. And within within a, what, three, what, six weeks, perhaps uh, we have we have driven Bud Light into the ground. Whether that will uh, be permanent, I don't know. I think it will be. But um, the, I think it's a it's a wonderful glimpse into the true power that we do have. We uh, we don't use it enough. We don't acknowledge it enough. And we often think, you know what? I just want to raise my kids, go to work, uh, pat my dog on the head and live my life. And that's the way I've grown up for the last I'm in my 50s now. It is no longer acceptable to do that. I'm sorry. It's not. The game has changed radically and dramatically. And if we don't flex our cultural power, our boycott and boycott power, then things will get dramatically worse and a, a sickening pace. And I agree with you completely. The Bud Light situation is is marvelous. And you could say it's imperfect. You can say, well, you know, the Dylan Mulvaney uh, promotion was microscopic in size, not a big deal. I agree with every, everything, but we need to send a message. And so far, we've sent it in, in a powerful way. And we need to keep doing that. You know, I'm a big sports fan. I often think, you know, there's the occasional lockouts and strikes and the baseball players, you know, take a knee and, and it goes on for months on end. You know what? If when those strikes resumed, the first game back, they played to empty seats. If everyone made that microscopic sacrifice and said, you know what, I'm not going back, not for the first week, there would never be another strike. There would never be another lockout. But we don't do it. We can, we should, but we don't. And what's happening right now with Bud Light and Target, it does matter. It really matters. And if we don't wake up and we don't act, the changes we're seeing now will be will be uh, minimal compared to how our culture changes in the next five to ten years. You know, it's really um, I'm just was struck by the, uh, the, the the irony of all this happening. And somebody mentioned it. Maybe it was Robert Spencer. Maybe it might have been you, Christian. I'm not sure about how, you know, back in the Soviet Union, uh, people were you know, someone was telling a story about how. Uh, you know, the, the, the average Soviet citizen in those days 
had such a warped view of America as a horrible, evil, you know, racist society and this and that, the other thing, and how when the first visitors came you know, to, to Russia and sort of disabused them of their knowledge, you know, it's not the case at all. all. What you're reading is what you're reading in Pravda. It's it's amazing, you know, how just the opposite is happening here. We are lobotomizing ourselves. We are censoring ourselves. Not we, but I mean the powers that be in the media and, and in the culture and elsewhere. And in less than and who knows, what, but when we leave the scene or as we get old and depart the scene, younger generations are not necessarily going to know if these this whole censorship regime under the table you know, happens. Because I just I want to go back to the French Connection is that uh, somebody made the point that when they when they censored it, they didn't they didn't notice note that on the on the copy of the uh, of the film. They just did it. And they expected people not to really who, who never saw the film to, uh, before to not notice it. The only people they were going to notice it are anybody who ever remembered the movie from when they saw it originally. And so if they, these kind of stealth edits, the same thing happening in dictionaries, in textbooks, in other books and so on and so forth. No one's going to know what the truth is. No one's going to know what the artwork is. When, you know, when Gene Hackman, who's in his 90s now, leaves the scene with William Friedkin, I don't even know if William Friedkin is alive anymore. When he, he is. Yes. And when he departs the scene, nobody, you know, 10, 15 years, who's going to know 10, 15 years from now that uh, the scene where he says the N word. And, you know, let me pause right there. The fact that I have to on a on a show in a clinical conversation have to say the N word and not as an epithet, but just as a word saying the N word is a bad word. If I said the full word, which I would get reamed and, 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 and destroyed. That's just that just speaks tons right there of the of who has the power, who does not have the power. But we're getting back to the other point is that, you know, down the road, all these stealth things are happening. You better hold on to your old copies of, uh, you know, your dictionaries, uh, your 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 films and everything else, your Blu-rays, Christian, and, and don't get rid of them because that's where the, the repository of the real thing is going to be. I mean, you know, I keep hearing that, you know, buy physical media, buy physical media, and I completely get it. But it also makes me crazy because we shouldn't have to do that. We shouldn't have to buy that. We should be taking action now. And I love the fact that the censors, you know, you could say they're soulless. You could say they're broken people, whatever you want to describe them. But there is a microscopic part of them that knows it's wrong and knows it's bad and knows there would be legitimate outrage for doing what they do it. So they do it in secret. They hide it. And, you know, in all these big tech platforms, when they censor people, when they shadow ban, when they kick people off, they often don't say why. And there's two reasons for that. One is, like I said, there's a little part of their soul that withers and is embarrassed for their actions. But also what the what the what the China like regimes do is they want to make you self censor. That's the next step. So you're thinking, gosh, you know, I got censored recently. I don't even know what I did. So I'm going to be extra cautious. I'm going to be extra careful. I'm not going to do anything remotely outrageous or thought provoking or interesting or creative because, gosh, I don't want to get censored again because I don't even know what triggered it the first time. It's how they win. They want you to self-censor. And today's left, which is radically different than the left of the 20, 20 or 30 years ago, they like it. They want it. Or if, if even if they don't agree, they're too afraid to speak up. Shame on them. There's an element of elitism in there, too. I think it's just they'll do it. They won't tell you they're doing it. And it's like, well, it's for your own good. Yep. They necessarily know that they're doing bad. I just think that they believe that they're doing good, but they can't let the rubes in on it because, uh, you know, it's uh, again, we're doing it for your own good. So you'll thank Hmm. us. 
<laughs> Shut up and thank you for shutting up. It's 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 amazing. Thanks. You're right. <laughs> I, I have to disagree with Christian. I don't think that there is even a hint of of understanding that what they are doing is profoundly anti-freedom and anti-liberty and anti-Western uh, culture. I think that um, they embrace it. They I think that it uh, it validates their 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 worldview. I think that it it makes them uh, feel like they are part of the power structure, and um, I think that they actually relish it. You may be right. And by the way, I think what makes it worse is that free speech has literally become a left-right issue. And there are some people who crossed that line, John Cleese, Rob Schneider, Joe Rogan, uh, the, you know, Dave Chappelle. There are people on the left or center left who are aghast at what's going on. But, you know, they're the exceptions. And so if you're a, a, a reliable liberal and, and a, you know, avowed progressive and you're a Biden voter, even if you wanted to support free speech, even if you wanted to stand up for the French connection, you can't because then you're playing for the other team. That's that simple. Yep. That, that's absolutely <laughs> the case. Um, you know, I, I have uh, I'm I'm Jewish. And uh, so I listen to um, Chappelle with sort of a, you know, a jaded ear. Um, he, he is. uh he embraces free speech, and I like that. I also don't like very much the way he talks about Jews in many ways. But the idea of, of censoring him for that or for using the N-word or for, for being critical of, of tra the transgender insanity in our world it would never occur to me. If I don't want to listen to him, I won't. Um, who was it? Felix Frankfurter, I think, with the Supreme Court justice, talked about sunlight being the, the best disinfectant. And you know, th that should be axiomatic in America today, but it isn't. The idea that, that we need to hide speech is absolutely insane. And, uh, you know, I, I can't imagine when it really started. I would guess probably in the 50s um, when it really accelerated uh, with the, the communists in, in Hollywood and the pushback against the blacklist and so on and so forth. Um, but but again, the idea that speech, that any speech is contrary to the to the precepts of of a free society is simply insane. You're right. I wrote that this morning. I said as, as repugnant as I feel that the KKK, the Nazis, the Aryan Brotherhood and so so on and so forth are, as long as they are not actively from a from a uh, legal standpoint uh, inciting violence or calling for violence or libeling or slandering or whatever it is anybody else let them say what they want to say as repulsive and repugnant as it is because the only cure for speech you don't like is more speech not less not less of it the problem now is you have the government now deciding the definition of words and what is a terrorist and what is an insurrectionist and now terrorists and insurrectionists are not uh, the BLM and Antifa guys hurling Molotov cocktails and you know burning down uh, 20 different cities because of the death of a guy who was resisting arrest. No, it's a it's a parent at a parent teacher conference objecting to transsexual education, objecting to critical race theory, and so on and so forth. That is now hate speech. There's this guy I just wrote about the other day. This this execrable POS named uh, Frank Filiuzzi who was an FBI guy, hello FBI, who was in on the whole Russian collusion hoax thing. And he's calling, he's bemoaning the fact on, of all places, naturally, MSNBC, uh, that there aren't enough laws to protect, uh, you know, to protect the transsexual community from, from the hate speech of, uh, you know, of parents who are now to be, uh, 
equated with uh, brown shirts and and uh, and Einsatzgruppen out to kill them on mass. That's the perversion of this whole thing. It's not just the censorship, but now the perversion of speech, speech and of un you know un uh, untouchable people or un uh, you know unpersons and un and enemies of the state that are to be vilified and uh, completely ostracized and it goes to the next step, arrested and thrown into gulags or worse. Yeah, and never forget the the media's culpability in everything we're talking about right now. Not only not standing up for spe- free speech, the media right now is is anti free speech. It's very clear, but also keeping us in cocoons. And you know, I I mentioned this that my wife is a Bernie bro and she's very liberal and I'm conservative. And you know, we we get along obviously. We've married for nearly 20 years. But you know, when I mention once in a while, I don't talk about politics with her or anything like that. It's just it's just our success formula. But when I sometimes I'll lose my top and I'll mention somebody like Dr. Fauci and she has no idea that Dr. Fauci is who he is, has done what he's done, has said what he said. She gets the media version, which is he's this hardworking warrior. He saved America. He's a, a, a hero. He's a patriot. He's this wonderful scientist. She has no context about what's going on in the in the real world. And it's not because she's dumb and it's not because she doesn't read the news, but she reads, you know, MSNBC and and ABC and all and all the the biased outlets. And so she gets no idea. So a lot of these conversations we're having, the vast majority of people don't even understand it. They don't have a reference point because they've never heard it before. Remember, years ago, I interviewed Josh Brolin. He was in Denver to promote a a movie. And it was, you know, the the free speech attacks on college campuses were just starting up. But I thought, you know, I don't get the chance to interview big stars often. I'm going to ask him about it. I said, what do you think about the attacks on free speech on colleges? Josh Brolin was a very nice guy, and he's a bright guy, and he's interesting. He had no idea what I was talking about, no clue. And he tried his best to answer the question. He wasn't being a jerk. He had no idea. People don't know. If the media hides these stories, then they don't get out. And I know that's maybe far afield from this conversation, but I think it's directly involved with almost every element of this conversation. Uh, absolutely. Uh, by the way, uh, Josh Brolin, I, um, I, I, I'm, you know, passingly familiar with his politics, which I, I don't like, but I think he's he's a solid actor. I, I enjoy his work. And by the way, it's going to sound silly. He was tremendous as Thanos in those Avengers films. Just his voice. I, I think they they uh, motion captured him, so that's his physical nature, and they just kind of slapped the, the purple stuff all over him. But to be that menacing a villain and to use his voice in that capacity, he's a very good, very underrated actor. So yep. there's that. I agree. Um, you know, g- getting back to um, that that disconnect between the you know the the casual liberal, the the not ignorant, but the disconnected um, American. Um, my wife is in uh, San Francisco uh, on business, and she flew back this morning. And walking through San Francisco Airport, she saw something that shocked her, and that is a la- a room labeled woman's room for breastfeeding and she is aware enough of popular culture and the disconnect between popular culture and reality that she was taken aback mm-hmm. uh, that you know in in the in the belly of the beast San Francisco it should of course have said uh, person's room for chest feeding <laughs> uh, and I said well you know you need go right to the uh, to the airport manager and complain about this this egregious affront. And uh, considering our, considering who our Department of Transportation Secretary is, uh, you will be duly, quote unquote, chastened. Uh, yes. Uh, yes. It will be gulag. 
<laughs> getting back to something you said, you know, Christian, you know, about your wife, and at the risk of me revealing my secret identity, I'm in a very similar situation as you. Um, here's the thing: there's there's people who don't understand, like Josh Brolin or your wife, or who never heard of these things before. Uh, how are receptive are they to you, or you know, I guess the broader question, maybe it's a rhetorical question: How receptive are people to actually being shown the truth and saying, "Look, here's what's going on." Are they just gonna? Are they gonna look at it and at least consider it? Or are they gonna say, "Oh no, it's uh, you know, it's from Hollywood and Toto, or it's from uh, it's from a conservative mm-hmm. site, and it's it's propaganda, it's it's fake news." I'm not gonna believe that. Uh, there's the pickle we're in, I guess. It's the it's a great question, and the answer, anecdotally from my perspective, is very dispiriting, because here, take it this way: if you spend three years hearing Fauci's a hero, Fauci's a hero, Fauci's a hero, and then you read one news article that says, you know what, he said this and this and this. It's hard to break through that Fauci is a hero narrative because that's what you've been accepting for years. I think that's that's where we are as a culture, that even if, you know, that's why these red pill moments, these red pill people are so fascinating because they it finally got through to them. But it's often not a one and done. It's often not, a, oh, I just read a story that changed my entire worldview on issue X. It's got to it's got to be a, a rat-a-tat-tat of attacks or, or information drips that make you see a new light. And again, I, I guarantee I could spend a half an hour. I, I wouldn't spend a half an hour with my wife because after five minutes, she'd, she'd leave the room. And I <laughs> love her to death. But she's I just had one of my best friends tell my wife that. Uh, I can't. I unfollowed Christian on Facebook. I, I couldn't take it anymore. Now, a, my friend is liberal. B, I don't care. C, I don't post aggressively conservative stuff on Facebook. And matter of fact, most of what I do is either sharing fun stuff or sharing extreme examples of media bias. So he couldn't even take that on on a digital platform where he could just like flick his finger and move past it. The modern liberal doesn't want to hear alternative points of view. Another example, my best friend of 20 years, I no longer speak to him. We had a fight two years ago. We were talking about Russian collusion and Governor Cuomo of New York. I said Russian collusion was a hoax and I had a lot of facts to back it up. And I said that Governor Cuomo is a horrible mayor, a governor, because he sent all those old people to die and he's full of you know what. And we're arguing back and forth. It was getting heated, but nothing extraordinary, but definitely heated. And he said, I can't take this anymore. And he hung up on me and we haven't spoken since. That's that's fascinating. And, and my my question is, have we moved far past the point at which we can have civil relationships without politics and political philosophy intruding? Um, and my answer is, yeah, I think we might have. I had a, a very, very interesting experience a couple of months ago. Um, I met a man who was clearly far, far to the left of of, of me, um, and yet we were able to spend several hours uh, discussing politics, uh, racial politics, uh, gun, you know, gun law in America, uh, and we ended the evening uh, better friends than we began. Um, and and. In fact, uh, he and his wife came over to dinner a couple of weeks ago. And what's interesting about that is how rare it is nowadays. And that really that saddens me. Um, but I think that is probably the, the the state of America going forward. Yeah, it's one of the reasons why I cheer on uh, Bill Maher. He has a podcast called Club Random. It's quite good. He's a very interesting fellow. And one of his goals with it is to move past that 
partisanship and have people on the left and the right. And even when they do spar on the show, it's never mean spirited. It's often jovial. It's cordial. It's respectful. And then they go back to talking about other issues. And I think and we need more examples of that. And recently, for some reason, I blank on her name, Alyssa Farrah, whatever her name is, she's the allegedly conservative view co-host and she's a clown and she's terrible at what she does. And I want to know how bad she is. But she was talking on on Twitter about, I think, D-Day recently. And she said, you know, if there was a, a similar threat to our world, would we be able to unite as a people? And I thought, you know, probably not. And partly because of the work that you do on The View, your show divides us. It makes us hate each other. It is an absolute uh, anathema to uh, to uni- to universally accepting one another. You're part of the problem. And how dare you go on your high horse and on Twitter and say, oh, it's so sad. We can't get along. No, you're part of the problem. Don't you see that? But she's a she's a fool. So I don't you know, she even if I mentioned that she wouldn't care. You know, the, the view is the story for another day, but it's just. It's making our country worse. And I don't even call for censorship. I'm a free speech absolutist. But I can look at that show and what they say and what they do and how they demean people in ways that are so factually inaccurate. It's cartoonish. They're making the country worse. Late night TV is making the country worse. And that's just what it is. You know, Tim Scott was on the other day on uh, on the view the other day. And I just don't uh, for me, I would have said, what the hell are you wasting your time on that show for? But apparently, um, you know, he really. He nailed him to the wall on so many things. And uh, I mean, it was, I believe, Joy Behar, who was probably one of the most execrable, horrible people. Uh, and of course, you have Whoopi Goldberg, who I call Fat Albert Spear. Uh, you know, <laughs> yeah. probably first. But the fact that Tim Scott went on the show and, you know, he, he basically you know, he laid waste to them for all their smears and sliming, and, you know, racial politics and so on and so forth. Joy Behar was afraid to go on the show once she found out that he was going to be on it. So that that kind of tells you something. There's this this disconnect of not wanting to be confronted with, you know, with forget about you can calling it the truth. Just forget about that. But just calling in an alternate viewpoint to what you believe is the truth and being forced to confront it, either confirm it, deny it, or, you know, so on and so forth. And this woman, this uh, Fari or whatever the heck her name is, bemoaning the fact of can't we all just get along? Well, to her, the, 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 the notion of getting along is we surrender to you. <laughs> get along means. When Joe Biden gets up there and does his uh, Lenny Riefenstahl speech in front of Independence Hall and talks about unity, yeah, he's got to be the unity. You all mm-hmm. get in line or it's, it's the gulag for you. So yeah. it's constant, as you mentioned, Christian, this drumbeat of all of these things year after year after year, wearing and grating on people. And this is the other part of the problem. Not only do the people on the left don't want to hear an alternate point of view, but you sort of trying to get through to them. It's like, you know, beating your head against a wall. And at, at a certain point, you just throw up your hands and you say, what's the use? Problem is, when you do that, they sort of, in a way, de facto win the argument. Absolutely. You, they win. You don't want to engage. We, we cannot do that. We do not have the luxury of throwing our hands up and saying, well, this isn't happening in my backyard. So I'm not going to worry about it. Well, it's like what, what we had, um, you know, the, other, the last episode, the great Kurt Schlichter was on. And in a way, it's sort of contra to what he's saying. He's saying. Oh, you believe this? I don't give a shit. I forget it. I don't. I don't care. And in a way, you know, with all deference to Colonel Schlichter, you kind of gotta care because if you don't, then you see. In a way, you are ceding the battleground and the battle space to them, and, and in a way, they won. So, one I, of the one of the advantages that we have as conservatives is that we hear the other side of the argument 24/7. It's inescapable. 
and they don't, the people on the left. So when we want to have a debate, an argument, a conversation, we're all for it because we understand the other side. We know our side and we could, uh, you know, articulate our positions. But they're so bubbled and they're so uh, unwilling to accept it. They can't even start that conversation too often. It's why they shut everyone down. You're a racist. You're a sexist. You're a homophobe. You're a bigot. You're a monster. You're a Trump supporter. You're a MAGA, whatever. They just shut you down because they can't even have a debate. They can't even have a conversation. They can't rally their arguments. It's it's pathetic. Yes, it is indeed pathetic, and uh, it's embarrassing uh, sometimes. You know, I'll I'll have conversations with uh, with younger relatives, and I have to bite back the "you can't possibly be that fucking stupid" <laughs> because they simply do not know. They they are in that bubble, um, and it's and it, sadly, it's not just a geographic bubble. I understand if they you know if they live in uh, in Brooklyn or uh, you know in, uh, on the Upper West Side of Manhattan, that would be one thing. But if but living all all across America, and yet they these people find the bubble in which to live. And it's it's disconcerting and it's a little sad because there, there's this lack of intellectual rigor, this lack of intellectual curiosity that is is looks like it's going to be the downfall of America if if we can't uh, reverse the progress of that. You know, I'll, I'll raise that uh, and, and uh, I'll see that and raise that another uh, few few trillion dollars. There was evidently a a, a poll taken of, among Gen Z and millennials or whatever that whatever generational anyway there was a poll taken where very disturbing majority or at least a very disturbing percentage of gen z younger people have no problem at all with government um spying on you of putting security cameras and observation cameras in your home to spy on you to see what you're doing this is a very troubling development my friends i mean it's like unbelievable so I would like to, to segue just a little bit um, and draw on Christian's knowledge of of uh, the media. Um, I'd like to talk a little bit about the what is going on in the streaming world and um, how how you see it changing uh, our consumption of of artistic work. Well, I mean, it's it's interesting. I think on a general level, we expect far, far less when we watch something on a streaming platform on, you know, so I think you have a lot of mediocrity coming on the streaming platforms that we just grin and bear it. Uh, I think that the um, it's changing a lot of Hollywood in that uh, there's more and more places for people to work, which is a good thing. I also think that um, it enables the older mediocre films to actually rise up because they're in comparison to what's being created today they're even better uh and then there's the whole writer's strike and the and the uh, the fiscal side of things where it looks like this is not a profitable landscape uh you know all these companies are pouring gazillions into new streaming content and it's not paying the bills and i think that's why you're often you're now starting to see some of the more woke politically charged stuff getting uh excised because it doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't help the bottom line. You know, we saw the Batgirl film famously go away in dramatic fashion when it wasn't even done and it was mostly made. Because I get, I don't know what they, you know, feared about that movie, but maybe it was so bad they just thought it wasn't worth the effort. We've seen shows like Willow, which was very woke, not only get canceled after its first season, but they took it off the streaming platform and used it as some sort of tax write-off. So. I think that's an interesting situation as well. And also there are so many platforms now. And I think what people do and what I do is I'll I'll sign up for Paramount Plus for a month or two. I'll soak up all the stuff I care about and I'll just 
let my my uh, subscription expire and go back to Max or, or Hulu and do the same thing. So there's a little loyalty there, and that's going to hurt them as well. So it's a it's amazing landscape. It's complicated. It's often uh, for the benefit of the consumer because there's just so much stuff out there. And it's interesting. And I want to paraphrase something I heard recently, which I thought was so interesting. Uh, you know, years ago, if you were a TV show writer, when you're writing a, a new sitcom, you have to worry about the two or three shows that you're up against in that time slot. If you're a creator today and you're putting out a product, you have to compete against every show and movie that has ever been made, which can be watched at a moment's notice. And I just thought that was such a powerful statement. Like, my gosh, it must be, you know, it puts me in the shoes of the writers and thinking how hard it is to do what they do because that's what they're up against right now. That's an Beyond interesting that. point that because there is so much to consume and it's so easily consumed that we simply don't have the uh, the emotional and intellectual uh, commitment to that consumption. I, I guess, you know, if, if I want to go see a movie, uh, I have to get into my car. I, I have to check the time to get into my car. I have to stand in line to buy a ticket. I have to sit for two hours. But uh, I can sit on my couch and churn through dozens of movies. And if I don't like the first five minutes, I'll just, uh, you know, a couple of clicks on a, on a, on a remote uh, and I'm on to the next one. You know, yes, I was going to say, we all do it. Beyond that, I mean, the, the fact is, uh, if you're a writer or you're a creator or whatever, if your show uh, does not either has a star that is white and male and Christian and is not, uh, uh, you know, and is not an inept bumbling fool and a racist and a knuckle dragger, and uh, your show does not star a, uh, you know, a, a, a lactating male uh, transsexual uh, Cuban midget uh, with, uh, you know, in, in, in drag, then you're differently able. Exactly. There it is. I can't say the C word now, but uh, that's part of it. Uh, The other part of it is that just the model of it's amazing how all these platforms, all this great ability to sort of click your finger and just go to the next thing without even giving it giving it a a second thought. uh, It reminds me of the what happened when when CDs first came out. I mean, I remember growing up as a kid in the 70s and 60s and 70s. And, you know, when you bought an album like like, you know, close to the edge or relayer from Yes. You know, it doesn't have like a two minute 45 single on it where you can just move the needle. You put the needle down, you put your cross headphones out on. Uh, if you did to do drugs, you lit up a joint. Not unlike me. I didn't do that. And you listen to the thing. Now, all of a sudden, you know, you can't do that anymore. Oh, this thing is boring. Click to the next one. Click to the next one. Click to the next one. Uh, the other observation is that Hollywood is now so, you know, is no longer has filmmakers that are at the heads of studios. You now have a team of, of executives that are really either lawyers or, you know, or um, MBAs and this and that. And they don't know anything about show business. And all they know about is who's buying tickets. Supposedly it's, you know, young boys aged, you know, 12 to 19. And so they want bigger explosions and so on and so forth. And then when the woke people get a hold of them, no, it's too, that's too male. It's too macho. It's too toxic. We have to have more women. In it. And so the studio system puts out, you know, what, $150, $200 million for, for a thing. Another two hundred million to promote it, and then it's a box office done. So this is this is not a healthy business model for both uh, the exhibitors or the studios, I think. But at least, as you say, Christian, it does give some creators the ability. Yes, you're going to have a lot of crap out there, but you're also going to hopefully have a lot of good things that would be quote unquote B movies or low budget movies or call it what you will that are inventive, innovative, and and show quality that people want to see that did not necessarily come out of a studio. So it's a good thing, I think. Good yeah, there's the, the, so, such rampant, monumental change on the creative front that it's 
it would take years just to explore it all and from the technological changes to the taste changes to cultural changes to business changes it is it is a fascinating time and it, often it does benefit the consumer which is what i i cheer on the 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 flexibility the cost the availability of content and then you know new platforms like the daily wire and lure tv and blaze tv and and all these different ways to see new shows that buck the system and then the system needs a bucket that's for sure what is a woman as a prime example of <laughs> exactly how you know, people were blaming Elon Musk for supposedly censoring it, but I think he still has a, a, a lot of uh, saboteurs in, in the ranks of, of uh, Twitter that are that are messing things up. But as that happens, he, I think he'll be able to clean house. I think he's, generally speaking, if not a white hat, black hat, he's got a, a fairly bright hat in this whole thing. And I think I think he is a champion of free speech. And the fact that, and this is a nice little segue into uh, another part of the entertainment and the streaming platform, the dissemination of news. I think. With Tucker Carlson's incredible debut on Twitter, I think that's that has literally been a sea change in the way news and and uh, and uh, this kind of commentary, you know, political commentary, uh, is has changed the landscape uh, uh, forever in the way the same way maybe television and broadcasting has changed radio and and print. Well, what are your thoughts? On that? Yeah, you know, I want to go back to Elon Musk briefly. I, I agree with everything you said. I. I I still fear that he won't be the true free speech warrior that we need and, and hope for, but I think he's done most of the right things. So we'll have to wait and see. But it's so funny that he went from, hey, he's the dude who made electric cars cool to he's the enemy. And he's the enemy because he supports free speech, period. That's why almost every article you'll read about him is slanted in a negative fashion. That's why he's hated by many people in Hollywood. It's so fascinating and so dispiriting to think his big sin was being a free speech guy. And for that, he must be destroyed. But you're right about the, the Tucker situation. You know, Fox News is fascinating because they really, really damaged their brand by both firing him and not having any compelling reason as to why they fired him. And the fact they're going to go after him now and say, well, you know, you can't even put on a Twitter show. I think that's going to really increasingly hurt their brand. And they can't afford that. No one can. You know, I think that the that the way we consume content is changing. I think late night TV is probably dying even before the writer's strike. It's just an archaic form. And the fact that, you know, you can go on Twitter and get a 10 minute compelling presentation from Tucker on your own terms when you want to see it, as opposed to, you know, watching, waiting for eight o'clock to see what Tucker has to say on Fox News. I think that speaks volumes about everything. And again, they hate Tucker, too. And I don't agree with everything Tucker does. I think he kind of goes in some conspiratorial fashions that I don't I don't approve of. But boy, he pokes the bear and he's smart and he's provocative and he's a necessary voice. And I, I you know, if he, he's got to be able to monetize his Twitter situation and, and somehow win his fight with Fox. But we need more people like that. And he can be a, a truly innovative force um, if he's not taken down. I think he's already innovated. Um, I think if you look at the criticism from the mainstream media of his his uh, 10 minute uh, Twitter um, presentation or, or whatever you want to call it, um, I mean, they 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 had nothing substantive to say. I saw uh, Potato Stelter um, <laughs> said that, oh, oh you look at his right hand. He's controlling his own telephone. <laughs> hey, you dumb fuck. So what? It was fascinating. I thought it was a great 10 minute presentation. Uh, by the way, I, I agree about his conspiratorial tendencies, Christian. Um, you know, the, the the UFO stuff. Oh, please spare me that. Um, 
but yeah. you know, listen, uh, it's called free speech. If he wants to talk about it, great. If I don't, I don't have to listen. But uh, by and large, I thought that that the, those ten minutes were fantastic. Um, the production values were fine. Uh, it was simple. It was robust. It worked perfectly. And boy, oh boy, somebody is somebody is threatened by that. The, <laughs> the fact that Brian Stelter is still employed by anyone in this age it makes me want to vomit. He's a horrible, horrible person, and I, I don't. And I'm just basing that based on his work and what we've seen. But the fact that he's still allowed to be a journalist in any capacity is is so shocking. And I hope we get to a saner age where we look back and think, oh my gosh. Brian Stelter was a buffoon, and he was gainfully employed, making more money than the average person for how many years? What? Wow, that's crazy. I, I can't wait to tell my grandkids about this, you know, that kind of a thing. But he, he's he's a farce. And the fact that he can even speak in public without being laughed out of existence, it, it doesn't speak well of us. Well, you know, there's Brian, there's Brian Stetler, but then you can go down the line. You have uh, knuckleheads like Joy Reid. You have knucklehead psychos like Rachel Matt. Oh, yeah, please. We, we, there's a definite there was not a lack of people like Brian Stetler and worse that are that are populating the broadcast news uh, uh, news, quote unquote, uh, landscape. But uh, but you're, you're right about that. I mean, if you look, it is amazing to me. I always look back at one of my heroes of uh, when I was a writer in Hollywood many, many moons ago, which more than I care to remember. But one of my heroes was Patty Chayefsky. And if you look at a movie like uh, like Network. It is amazing how accurately he nailed, uh, and, and, he, and even then, it, just, it was outrageous to watch it back in 1976, and it's tame by comparison, but all of the things that he's showing, and even in the movie like The Hospital, how he pokes fun at intersectionality in, in one scene and, and so on and so forth, it is truly, he was a man ahead of his time, and he died way too young. I can only imagine looking down from heaven going, oh my God. <laughs> I, I think I I think I held back a little bit too much on those films, guys. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, <laughs> it's uh, you know, we live in in such dispiriting times that I I, <laughs> I listen to Jesse Kelly sometimes, and maybe he's hyperbolic, and I'm sure he is, but he points to so many cultural flaws right now across the board, touching on topics we're talking about, touching on topics we're not. It's it's hard not to get discouraged, and you, you you scramble for the glimmers of light, but they're they're increasingly rare. So, Christian, I'm going to put you on on a bit of a spot and ask you to um, predict the state of of media consumption in five years. What do you see happening with the you know the 50 or 100 different streaming services and um, you know, the, the explosion in um, the, uh, you know, st- straight straight to video uh, movies that most of which are awful, by the way, um, but also how how the mainstream media is going to try to insin- insinuate itself into the streaming world. You know, I, I think my my big overarching is I don't know. I don't think anyone knows. I mean, I think things are changing so dramatically. I think we're increasingly able to do things when we want. I think that's a good thing overall. I don't think that changes. I think I think instant gratification can be a terrible thing for us as human beings. So there's that. And it's sort of a, a side issue. I, I, I don't know. I mean, I think what we're seeing is more content, uh, more content creators, more attempts to censor content, uh, more platforms to share information. And I think the Tucker situation speaks to 
an increasingly conspiratorial age, which I don't think really helps anyone, honestly. Um, I, I think that just sows, sows, that sows doubt in, in ways that don't help the culture. So I don't know. I, 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 I think anyone who thinks they have a, a clear crystal ball vision of things is probably fooling themselves. I mean, I, 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 I can't, I can't, didn't imagine what, where we'd be today. I can't imagine what would be tomorrow, honestly. I, I, I feel um, insufficient to, to, to look into the future, honestly. Well, there's uh, proof positive uh, that Mr. Toto is not a liberal. Um, he, he admits that he doesn't know what's going to happen in five years. It's really <laughs> shocking. I, you know, you, I, the fact that you don't have a five-year plan is, is a little disturbing to us. Off with his head. Yes. <laughs> I do I, I do embrace the fact that there's plenty of stuff I know nothing about. There are plenty of subjects I do not give hot takes on. Uh, and I, I think more I think more people should follow that lead. You say, what do you think of the dope problem? And I said, yes, we have too many dopes. You know, yeah. George Coleman, you know, Anyway, I think uh, we're probably at about at the uh, at the limit of this podcast. So uh, Christian Toto, it has been a pleasure. You are erudite, fantastic hour, a very fast hour or more, perhaps, of conversation about uh, where the hell we are culturally and uh, First Amendment wise. And it's kind of a bleak picture, but in all fairness. But I mean, we're still here. We're still breathing and we'll we still have some fight in us. So um, let's go to his website, uh, ladies and gentlemen. It's called Hollywood in Toto, T-O-T-O dot com. Uh, for some great insights into the world of culture, film, TV, radio, music, and so on and so forth. Christian Toto, great to have you. Thank you. I really appreciate it. I enjoyed the conversation. Christian, thank you very much for joining us. Really, really appreciate it. Uh, this has been the Cut Jib Newsletter Speaks podcast. Uh, for CBD, Christian Toto, it's JJ Sefton. We'll see you on the next one. Thanks for listening, folks.